All right, everybody, go ahead and uh, grab your coffee, grab your drink, get settled in. Uh, This evening, as we get into our talk, we're going to watch a quick video. I asked some uh, friends, uh, well, one friend in particular, if he would help us in the midst of this series because I wanted to be able to give some practicality to what we're talking about. And so much of what we hear now within political conversations is about the role of the media and uh, the phrase fake news. And so I uh, asked a friend of mine uh, who is a uh, journalist. In fact, he used to live here in Las Vegas. He used to work for the Las Vegas Sun, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize as uh, part of the staff uh, at the Las Vegas Sun for a, party, or for a story that they uh, ran many years ago. And uh, then from there, he, uh, right, right about the time that we moved here, he moved to go to seminary. And so he is uh, a Christian. Uh, he has received uh, advanced theological training, and he's still very committed to journalism. Uh, It's still a part of his life. And so what I asked him to do was to give us a a five-minute video on how we could be more discerning uh, about our news intake and and what that looks like in our own life. Uh, So let's go ahead and uh, watch this together. Hey, everybody. My name is Matt Huffman. It is great to be with you. I wish I was with you in person because Las Vegas is my adopted hometown. Um, but it's great to be with you virtually. So grateful for what Pastor Jake's doing in Las Vegas and what he's doing with Purple Church. I'm a journalist and a minister. So dealing with truth and trying to sort truth from non-truth is a big thing for me. Um, he's asked me to talk about fake news so I'm go- and give you a few ways you can you can deal with it. I'm going to give you about 45 minutes worth of material in about four and a half minutes. Um, And I'm going to tell you three things to think about before you hit share, before you post something online, um, and before you get uptight, because we all do, right, uh, about a story. Three things to think about when you read something that you're wondering about, and it's this. First, check the facts. I don't want you to check every fact. don't want you to check every name. I want you to think about it. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. If it sounds too bad to be true, like it's about a candidate you don't like and they're calling him or her names and saying they did things that probably didn't, it's probably not true. Um, I want you to understand something. It's when I, fake news is not new. When I started, people called it media bias. But if you open your Bibles, you will find it in the book of Genesis. The serpent goes to Adam and Eve. And what's he do? He uses half-truths and twists the facts to lead them astray. So be careful. If something doesn't sound right, double-check it or don't share it. Easy ways to tell this is when when there are people clearly wanting to lead you astray, you'll find grammatical errors often, you will find spelling errors, you will find experts from institutions, university and government agencies that don't exist, and they're often just, you can tell, it's kind of made up, it looks made up, it sounds made up, it probably is. Uh, So those are ways to tell. Second is check the source. You know, I saw a story uh, some time ago about a World War II submarine that showed up in some weird place that it shouldn't have. It just appeared. It was like it showed up in Lake Mead. Look, there's a World War II bomber at the bottom of Lake Mead. There is not a submarine. You know, how would it have gotten there, right? So um, the place was out of, it was out of place, but it was on a website that looked like CNN's. There were misspellings, even though it looked like CNN. There were photos. There was an expert who they'd made up from an organization that was totally made up. 
If I just looked at the URL first, I would have known because it wasn't CNN.com. It was like CNN International News com dot NZ or R dot RU, and it was clearly fake news. Now be careful when you're checking the source because sometimes what people say is fake news or get outraged about isn't fake news at all. It falls into one of two categories. One is satire, the other is opinion. I get people asking me regularly about things they see on the Babylon Bee, a well-known Christian satire site, or the New Yorker's Borowitz Report. He is a comedy writer and he satires Washington, D.C., but he, he quotes Mitch McConnell, he quotes administration officials, he quotes Democrats as if they're real, but he's made up the quotes. It's satire. Sometimes you have to look to find the tag that it's satire, but it's when you read it, you'll say this is too good or too bad to be true, depending on where you sit politically. On opinion, it's a little tougher because opinion gets mixed in with news now, um, but often the key indicator is when somebody's writing an opinion, they will often give them a bio, short bio at the end. So it'll say, you know, Sally Moe is a former Republican congresswoman from Florida, or Richard Rowe is a Democratic strategist. Um, and in those cases, you know, people are allowed to have their opinion. Um, they're not allowed to play with their own facts. Uh, but they're allowed to have their own opinion. So don't get, a, don't get overly uptight about somebody who has a different opinion and claim it's fake news. It just may be a different opinion than yours. The final thing I would say is this, is check your heart. So check your facts, check your sources, check your heart. Sometimes we will share things that go with our feelings. And this often happens in sports and in politics. Um, we want our team to do well and we want the other team to do poorly. And so we'll share things that may not be true because we get blinded to the facts and sources because of what our heart wants or because of what our opinions want. Um, I think that's what happened with Adam and Eve. I think that's what happens with us. And I'm not saying this as somebody who's pure and perfect in this. It happens to me too. So those are the three things I would tell you. Um, if you want to have more conversation, you want to talk to me individually or send me questions, um, your pastor has my email, happy to answer those questions. May God bless you. May he keep you in peace in this political season. Uh, and may you be very blessed in Nevada. I think that's great. I think, that's, I think as Christians, we should be committed to truth. All truth. And uh, when Christians uh, especially share things that are not true, it does damage to uh, the, the witness that we proclaim. Uh, and, and you might ask yourself as we get started this evening, why in the world would we do this series? Like what's, what's the point? Why, why, am I, why am I doing Purple Church? Why am I talking about it? Uh, you might say like, hey, you're a pastor. Uh, we don't come to you for politics. Let's just leave that alone. Uh, or you're a pastor. You don't have anything to say about that. And uh, so I was, I was trying to reframe the thought of why am I doing this as we wrap up this last thing together. Uh, it's not because I have any political agenda. I do have uh, opinions about candidates and issues uh, and, and all of that. Uh, but I'm really trying not to do that. Uh, what I, for me, this becomes a discipleship issue. Uh, so I have, a, I have an iPhone. And uh, with the latest uh, update, maybe a couple updates ago, uh, the iPhone added a new feature, which is it monitors your screen time. 
and, and you can turn this feature off, but every once in a while, in fact, earlier today, it sent me a little notification, and it said, this is on average how much time you've spent looking at a screen this week. I don't want to share what the number was, because it was, it was embarrassing. Uh, Janelle really doesn't like it. She always says, don't judge me. <laughs> uh, it, but they, they have this thing. And so I, I, I just I want you to consider, how much time do you spend you staring at a screen? It's probably more than you think. Like the, the first number that comes into your head, it's probably more than that. You know what I mean? The, and so what, whether we realize it or not, the more time we spend in something, the more we're discipled by it. In other words, it begins to shape and think how we feel and, and what we believe. And, and it, it begins to affect us through that. And, and you may go, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure. But this is why researchers point to the damage of, for instance, Instagram. You have a whole generation of kids growing up looking at Instagram feeds all day long. And then they wonder why their life doesn't look like that. But they don't realize it took that person 100 shots to get that shot. And so they become discipled to think, my life has to look like that. And they begin to try and live like that. For some of us in this room, we are discipled by Fox News. We spend so much time consuming Fox News that it begins to shape the way we think and feel. For some of us in this room, I'm going to play equally today. For some of us in this room, you're shaped by MSNBC. You, you watch every show, it's on in the background, and the commentators and everything that's going on begins to shape how you live and you think and you feel. And so I couldn't take it anymore because what I saw happening was that in the church we were lacking discipleship. Not just in Saw Church, but in the church broadly in the United States of America, we're lacking discipleship in this issue, and instead we're letting other things inform how we think and live in this way. And so why do Purple Church? Because I want to follow Jesus. And I want you to follow Jesus. Why do Purple Church? Because the way Christians think act and behave, the way Christians vote and talk with elected officials and talk about elected officials, all impacts our testimony about Jesus. When people ask, who is this Jesus? And then they go to look at our lives and they see one message about what we say when we're in church and then another message about how we behave when we're engaged civically and politically they go which one's true and so for me purple church isn't about any kind of political decision that you might make it's about a discipleship decision that I want us all to make are we following Jesus and that's why we began this series with the talk about who is Jesus that question that Jesus asks who do you say I am? And the answer that Peter gives and the answer that all Christians must give in order to be called Christian is, you are the Messiah. And if Jesus is the Messiah, that has some implications about His rule and His reign and His kingdom in our life. I do believe that that does have civic and political implications. But Jesus is the Messiah. It's His kingdom. 
And, and then, then we talked about uh, who's my neighbor. And, and so often we, we ask the question like, who is my neighbor? And that's where Jesus uh, engages and he tells the story about the Good Samaritan. And, and that's where we get the, the, the wrapping up of what is called uh, the Great Commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus takes it even a, a step further. Jesus takes the question, who is my neighbor? And by the end of the story of the Good Samaritan, he flips it on his head and says, are you a neighbor? Do you behave neighborly? Are you the kind of neighbor that, that you, you want others to be to you? Let, let's stop asking questions about who. Let's stop asking questions about they. Let's ask some questions about you. Who are you? And then at the end of Jesus' life, he, he, he goes from great commandment to new commandment. And he says, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. And if we're going to be faithfully and civically engaged, I think we need to start a great commandment. I think a great commandment is a great place to start. Love your neighbor as yourself. But I think we need to move from great commandment to new commandment. Love your neighbor as Jesus loved you. And sometimes that means that you would take on um, burden on yourself. That, some, that sometimes means that, that you, would, you would support an issue or a candidate that, is, that might adversely affect your life, but it will improve the life of your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's start there and then let's move to love your neighbor as Jesus loved you. And then tonight, I, I, I want to talk about power and obedience. As Christians, we believe that we know the end of history. We, we hold on to the hope that one day all things will be united and made right in Christ. The kingdom that Jesus proclaimed when he was on earth will finally be perfected on the earth. And we will get to live in that kingdom with God forever. And in that kingdom there is good news for the poor. There is release for those that are captive. There is sight for the blind. There is freedom for the oppressed. There is, there is favor in that kingdom, there is only right and there is no wrong. In that kingdom, there is justice. In that kingdom, there is peace. In that kingdom, there is safety and provision and healing. And this is the hope that we hold on to as Christians. This is the anchor for our souls in the midst of swirling seas of chaos. And while we may not see that in our world right now, we know that it is coming because Jesus, the Messiah, the one who's conquered sin and death, has said so. We believe the words of the prophet and the mystic, the one who has seen the apocalypse, as he writes in the book of Revelation. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. He will live with them, and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death 
or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said this to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And because we believe those words, and because we believe that Jesus has declared the coming of this kingdom through his words and deeds, through his death and resurrection, we believe then that we live as members of the kingdom right now. And that's great, except for when it's not. The problem with knowing the future and how the future will end is that we create the desire to be on the right side of history. You ever heard that phrase? It gets tossed around, I think, more often now. The right side of history. Now, this isn't just a problem for Christians. If you pay attention to any kind of news or speech, uh, especially around charged issues, you, you hear this phrase a lot, the, the right side of history. As if we, humans, can predict the course of history. And so, whether you believe that you can predict the future road that history will go down because of a sacred text like the Bible, or because uh, of a scientific understanding of the world and how it progresses and, and evolves, what happens is, is once you become convinced that you know what the end of history is, then you try and be on the right side of history. Here's where the danger lies. If you know the right side of history, then you're tempted to use any means to bring about the right side of history. This is so often where the church has failed throughout the course of 2,000 years. Is when we have believed that we knew the end of history, and so as a result, we would do anything to make that history happen. Part of that leads to things like the Crusades. We know that God's kingdom will cover the earth. Let's start now. This week, maybe not religiously, but this week we, we had an individual who believed that he knew the right side of history. And so because he knew the right side of history, he put bombs in the mail and then sent them to people because they either needed to die or get on the right side of history. Just yesterday, tragedy in Pittsburgh as a completely evil, misguided, absolutely unchristian notion that Jewish people aren't on the right side of history. And so I can go into a synagogue and shoot people because they're Jewish because they won't be on the right side of history. This is the danger. 
This is not something that's made up. We've watched it throughout time. Uh, recently, more recently, last, mm, gosh, now probably 30, 40 years. If you know what is morally right, then you're tempted to use any means to bring about moral right. And so that's why you have issues like the bombing of abortion clinics. Where you had people threatening doctors who performed abortions and and bombing abortion clinics because they knew what was morally right and it didn't matter the means to bring about moral right. Recently on the other side of, of that very same issue, I don't know, I think within this year, I came across a headline and it said, Iceland ha- has eradicated Down syndrome from their population. I, okay, don't quote me exactly. I want to say it was Iceland, but I forgot to look up the article. So it may have been a different country, and I'm sorry for any Icelanders that may be watching. Um, uh, but it, it, was, it was a country in Europe that said it has eradicated a, uh, Down syndrome. And I thought, this is great news. How did they do that? And I read the article. And what happens is that in that country, every time a a, a baby receives the, the diagnosis of Down syndrome, they perform an abortion. Because they've come to believe that having Down syndrome is not on the right side of history. There's danger when human beings who are fallible, who are finite, believe that they know the path that history will take and then do anything to get it there. As if somehow we can grab the power of the universe. We can grab the power of time. We can just grab the power of the world around us and we can force it to go in the right direction. I think part of this is at the temptation that Jesus faces in his own life. And so... I want to look tonight at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're going to look tonight at Luke chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you could turn to Luke chapter 4 this evening. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give one to you. There's one out at the concierge cart. It's for you to keep, take with you. You can download one, bible.com slash app. Be right here on the screen. Luke chapter 4. Jesus has just been baptized uh, by his cousin, John the Baptist, and then he is driven out into the wilderness to be tempted. Uh, and, and this is the, the, the thing that we're going to read, Jesus' temptation. So, uh, starting Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Uh, by the way, side note, just take a time out. If you find yourself in a wilderness, sometimes it's because Jesus drove you there. Uh, that's what the Holy Spirit does sometimes, is drive you into the middle of a wilderness as much as we would not like that. Continuing on. Um, that one was for free tonight. Um, Jesus is in the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Now here the devil begins to tempt Jesus, and I want us to 
to, to frame this within what we're talking about, knowing history and the course of history and what's going on, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. You're the Son of God, right? You could do that. You have power. Go ahead and do that. Would that be wrong? Jesus tells him, no. The Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. At this point, Jesus is hungry. He's hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Is it wrong for Jesus to eat? No. Will this fast end? Yes. Is it even wrong for Jesus to turn stones into bread? No, it's not. He's the Son of God. He can do it. It's about how He does it and why in that moment. Continuing on. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it, to, uh, give it all to you if you will worship me. Is Jesus eventually going to be over all of the kingdoms? And have authority over all of them? He certainly is. That is why he's come. That is part of his mission. That the Son of God will sit on the throne and he will reign over all peoples and all nations. This is the end desire. This is where it's headed. Why not just take it now? Just whip out the whole cross thing. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, You must worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and he said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the Scriptures say He will order His angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Is Scripture wrong? No. Will Jesus... Be victorious? Will he be protected? Does he have angels at his beck and call? Yes. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Man. When I was getting ready for this talk, I was like, wow, I don't know that I've really paid attention to that before. Just leave until the next opportunity. I, I want to look just a little bit at some of the next opportunities. Here's the, here's the thing. You're tempted when you know the end, or when you think you know the end, you're tempted to grasp for power instead of obedience. You're tempted to grab the reins. Hey, God, I know where we're going. I got this. And you grab hold of whatever power you can grab onto and say, here we go. I'm going to make it happen. 
And we do the same thing across all areas of our life. But I think especially in in times like we are in right now, politically and civically, where, where we have a television yelling commercials at us at every opportunity saying you gotta you gotta grab your rights you gotta hold on they're trying to take something from you that person is trying to take something from you that issue is trying to take something from you they want your money they want your vote and it's tempting to say well i know this is where this is headed let's grab on and make it happen to grab for power Christ didn't grab for power. Instead, he he went for obedience. Here's what one writer says in Philippians. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Okay, well, let's pay attention to this. You must have the same attitude that, that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. God is all-powerful. And though He was God, He did not cling to being all-powerful. Instead, He gave up His divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. When you're trying to seek God and follow Jesus, you can have power or you can have obedience, but I don't know that you can have both. Faithful civics does not grasp for power. Being faithful in the kingdom of the Messiah does not grasp for power. And it's something that we have to continually come back to over and over again. Because every two years we're going to have an election. In fact, Within this city, we have an election every year because city elections happen on the off year. Every year, you're going to have the opportunity to grasp for power civically and politically. The temptation comes again. Throughout Jesus' life, I I think you you see those, those things begin to happen. The first temptation that Jesus dealt with was turning breads into stone. Later in his ministry, he would try and get away from a crowd of people to spend some time with his disciples. But the crowd followed him. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them and a pretty large crowd gathered. And he taught for a long time. And then he turned to his disciples and said, go ahead, feed them now. And they said, well, don't have anything to feed them with even if we had enough money to go buy a meal this is impossible jesus and he says what do you got 
well, we got five loaves and two fish. Not much better than stones. And on that day, he feeds 5,000. He literally transforms five loaves and two fish to 5,000. He can do it. Why? Because he's the son of God. The, The temptation is absolutely right. Aren't you the son of God? Can't you do this? Yes, he can. Just imagine if Jesus was trying to grab hold of power within the Jewish culture of the time. Or get enough people to kick out the Romans. 5,000 is a pretty good place to start. And you just fed them all. It would be pretty easy to say, In my kingdom, you'll never go hungry again. Let's go! Right in that moment. But Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't consider power something to be grasped. He just held on to obedience. Secondly, Jesus has offered the kingdoms of the world. And on one Sunday... He turns to his disciples, he says, we're going to Jerusalem today, today's the day, go get me a donkey. And he begins to ride from Bethany into Jerusalem, and as he does, people start getting excited. And they go and they cut down palm branches from the trees, and they lay out a royal road for him made of palm branches and their own jackets, and, he, and he's riding a, a, a donkey, which every Jewish person knew the king is going to come on a donkey. Look, here he comes. Here's the king, the one who can finally rule and reign over the kingdom. And they just start clapping and singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. There's just this rallying cry. It gets so loud and so boisterous. And then he gets to the city And in that moment, how easy would it have been to take the crowd and its emotions and the power within that and to turn it on its head and kick the Romans out and kick the Jewish leaders out and say, I'm going to have a kingdom someday. How about now? And instead, he just leaves the crowd disappointed. Because he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he tried to hold on to obedience. Jesus, the third temptation, you're at the top of the temple. Jump down. Don't worry, the angels will come get you. And then he's on a cross. And the people walk by. And they say, if you were the king of the Jews, if you were the Savior, if you were the Messiah, if you were the Son of God, go on, jump down. Couldn't you call 10,000 angels if you needed to? Yeah, he could have. But he didn't. Because 
He didn't consider power something to be grasped. Instead, he went for obedience. As Christians, we follow Jesus. And we live like he lived. We don't grasp for power. We obey. We believe that Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, already has all the power. And he does not need us to obtain power for him. Christ doesn't need us to obtain power for him. Faithful civics strives for obedience. Obedience doesn't mean it's always one way. Always one issue, always one action, even always one party. Obedience changes. Sometimes I tell my kids, don't move. That doesn't mean don't move forever. It means in this moment, right now, don't move. The next day I might say, let's go. You you understand what I'm saying? Obedience is a journey of us sticking with God and following the Holy Spirit, going, I'm not trying to grasp the reins of anything, whether it's politically, civically, or even individually in my own life. I am not grasping for the power to control and move the course of history where I think it's going to end up. Instead, in this moment, God, how do you want me to behave? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to act as I hold this ballot in my hand? How would you? you like me to vote and the because we know the end of Jesus story I think sometimes Christians can get the idea that obedience is just kind of like a magic trick it's a little switcheroo that in the end we're gonna get power because in the end Jesus reigns and rules over all the kingdom he conquers death and so it's like okay God I'll do it your way let's trick him And listen, obedience is not a magic trick. It's not a little switcheroo. It's just obedience. You obey to obey. You don't obey so that eventually you get power. Just obey. And when we do that, as a purple church, what begins to happen, I believe, is that our obedience testifies to the Messiah who already has received all the power. So when you and I choose to obey rather than grab for power, people would look at that and go, why? Because we don't need to grab for power. We serve a Messiah who already has all the power. Instead of asking for power to move the course of history or to move a nation or to move a law, Christians should pray for the power to obey. A purple church doesn't grasp for power. 
we don't consider equality with God something to be held on to. A purple church doesn't go, well, I know in the end God's kingdom is going to rule and reign, so I'll do whatever it takes to get it there. A purple church obeys. So as we wrap up these kinds of conversations, which I'm sure will continue on and on because we still have an election that's a couple of weeks away and it's not like any of these things are even going to go away after the election. This is something that we'll keep having to come back to. I'm asking us to let God disciple us and let His truth and His principles disciple us More than we let a screen, a person, a party, a news network, or anything else disciple us. You are the Messiah. I'm going to love my neighbor as you've loved my neighbor, or as you've loved me. And I'm going to obey rather than hold on to power. Let's be a purple church.